What's up, bingers? If you didn't hear already on the episode with the captain, every Saturday for the next few months, I'll be publishing two bonus episodes from interviews that I conducted during Season 9 of Truth and Justice here on True Crime Binge. And today's bonus episode features one of the most interesting conversations that I've had to date with any other podcaster. You've already heard from his fabulous co-host, Dr. Shiloh. And today I have for you the other half of the L.A. Not-So-Confidential podcast, forensic psychologist, Dr. Scott. The Internet's full of true crime podcasts. More and more are added to the list every day. Figuring out where to start or where to go next can be overwhelming. But have no fear, I'm here to help. I'm Bob Ruff, and this is the place to find your next true crime binge. All right, Dr. Scott, we had a we just had a brief conversation off the air that uh, I think the listeners may be interested in. So you are one of the hosts of L.A. Not So Confidential, and I had asked you if Scott was your first name or your last name, and and it it seems that already we have some things in common as to uh, why you are Dr. Scott. So can you can you explain a little bit about that and and a little bit about who you are and what you do now? Yeah, sure. Thanks uh, for that setup. Um, so, uh, Dr. Shiloh and I are uh, the hosts of a true crime and forensic psychology podcast called LA Not So Confidential. We ostensibly called it that because, you know, we're both, I guess I've been here long enough to now be considered a, a native of Southern California, although I grew up in Alabama. And Shiloh has, you know, been here all her life. And um, we met doing our uh, forensic psych internships together years ago and really hit it off immediately. And um, one of the things that happened, I mean, you know, fast forward a decade later and Shiloh turns to me as we're walking back from lunch one day and she says, I think we should do a podcast. And I'm like, no, 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 we're not going to do that. And then of course, within about 30 steps, she had <laughs> convinced me. And um but we we realized very quickly because we both work. Shiloh, I'm a former law enforcement psychologist. I'm a former uh, correction psychologist, and Shiloh is a law enforcement psychologist. And we both work with large agencies. So, in order to maintain um, the separation between those things, we go only by our first names, and we're very careful. Like you know, we we tend to focus on things that have there's a little bit of distance. Uh, if we pick out crimes, we'll pick out things that are maybe happening right now, but um, it's easier to talk about them if sure. they're in another state. You know, if there's something super current and it's happening in Southern California, we really have to be very careful about offering any kind of perspective because we would not want to mess up the legal proceedings in any way. So, you know, we're a little coy about using our names, but like I was telling you, anybody that was a deep diver uh, or even a, a medium diver with with internet searches could figure out who we are. Yeah, that this, I went through this similar thing as with a, a stage name when I when I started my podcast. I was actually a fire chief, and the first podcast I started was actually called Off Duty, um, which we, we don't do that one anymore. But I I went by for two three years on that show as Chief. No one knew my name because I, I was just Chief because I didn't want my name out there because working for Working for or with government agencies, that you, it's it's real easy to get called in front of a, a board. In my case, and have to answer to why I'm speaking publicly about anything. Right. So I want to learn a little bit more about you. I've, I've listened to quite a few of you guys' episodes. They're great, by the way. I love them. And oh, thank you, thank you. I'm really into. I'm this, I'm like an amateur criminal behavior analyst. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm good friends with Jim Clemente. I'm sure you're familiar with. Oh yeah. Um, and, and he's, he's taught me a little bit and I've got all the books, which gives me just enough knowledge to think I know what I'm doing when I really don't. Uh, but I'm fascinated by the field. So this is why I'm fascinated by your, by your podcast. But you know, I started doing a little bit of research on you speaking of uh, deep divers and creepers. And and so far, all I've really come up with is you, you much like Jim, you you spent some time in the TV world, and also uh, you've kicked a World of Warcraft addiction. 
Yeah, I, I was. Yeah, I, I tend to have maybe a bit of an addictive personality, and that was probably the closest I ever came to something that was uh, impairing uh, aspects of my life. But damn, it was fun. It was fun. <laughs> it was some good times. But uh, yeah, I um, I was in entertainment. Uh, I was a performer all through uh, high school and college on scholarship, and then I worked in Chicago and moved my way out to L.A. And after I kind of realized like it was time to transition out of performing, I, I was really lucky. I had a a, a very good friend who was an agent at a very large agency. And he um, said, look, I don't know if you want to be an agent or not, but why don't you come work here as an assistant and you will learn what you need to know and you will have doors open to you. And I think, you know, he certainly saw something in me, which I really appreciated because I, I had no idea what to do after coming out of performance for a decade. And, um, I had a great experience at this very large, like, uh, multinational talent agency. And I figured out very quickly that as much as I liked different aspects of it, that was not something that I wanted to do. I did not want to represent uh, talent in that way. And I was talking with one of the really successful commercial agents and he said, I think you'd really like casting. And I said, yeah, I think I would. Cause I was t- talking to casting directors every day. And, um, I, I, I kind of, I think I had built up a pretty good reputation as being somebody because I was a little bit older than some of the other assistants. I just had a communication style with casting directors that was pretty direct that I think they appreciated. And he, my friend, uh, David at the time put out the word like, Hey, um, Scott's looking for a casting gig. And I had a, I had a job offer that afternoon. So um, I oh, went wow. from, yeah, I went from being an agent's assistant to an assistant to a casting director or a casting assistant. And then I got promoted to associate. And then I was in charge of my own shows for a while. And then I was looking for other things to do. And I went back into talent management, which was an enormous mistake. It was just an enormous mistake. It was not uh, fulfilling or anything. Um, although I, you know, I worked with some really talented actors that are doing really well today. So I transitioned over into post-production, which was a really cool field. And I got to work on um, all the Lord of the Rings DVD uh, content, um, which was oh, like really? a, a, a yeah, a complete you know, nerdgasm for me as a kid <laughs> who was such a, a geek growing up. So I got to work really closely with the B camera crew that was in New Zealand, uh, filming all the interviews with the actors and uh, I would work with the editors, and then I kind of worked my way up to an associate producer where I got to produce a couple of segments on uh, a Disney DVD and some Warner classic movies. Um, it was it was great, but I had this um, really great gift that was given to me by one of my bosses because I was trying to figure out, like, okay, I need to figure out, like, is this what I do for the rest of my life? And, you know, it, we have a saying out here that entertainment is a harsh mistress mm-hmm. because it is... When you're working, it's a freaking blast. I mean, it is just so much fun. It's the coolest people, but there is no guarantee. There is nothing solid. You know, you are basically going from job to job and, you know, you feel very transient. And I was at a point in my life where it's like, I got to figure this out. And I had been in therapy for a while. And my therapist said, I think you should consider going this direction. And I was like, nah, no, God, I'm, I'm sick of you listening to me. I can't believe you. I can't believe you can listen to me. I don't want to do that. And he kind of convinced me and cajoled me for a while. And I uh, went and took an intro class. And immediately, my synapses started crackling in a way that they had not in a long time. And, you know, that was the beginning. I got halfway through a master's program and realized, like, uh, no, I, I need the doctorate. And then I got halfway through the doctorate. And I was like, I want to do the hardcore stuff. And, you know, I was went right from that... Uh, internship with Dr. Shiloh into working in the California Department of Corrections on a maximum security level four yard, you know, just sort of literally thrown into the most challenging environment. And it was, it was great. So that's sort of my life story in a nutshell. I hope that's where you were heading with that question. I tend to kind of jump all over the place. Yeah, well, you know, there was a minute I was going to ask a more frivolous question um, um, for a minute there and ask if you ever came across Lisa Zambetti when you were doing the casting or agent work. I don't know if you're familiar. She's a, she was a casting director for criminal minds for a long time, worked with Jim Clemente. Oh, 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 Oh no. You know, we were different generations. I mean, like by the, 
she's younger than me. And, you know, by the time she's was in like the, you know, there, there's a big turnover in casting. So, but I know of her and I think she does incredible work, like really incredible work. Yeah. It, well, and then my, my internship. So, so that's a hell of a reboot story <laughs> without, without, you know, breaking, you know, the, the rule of a gentleman asking your age. I don't know how, you, how old you are. You don't seem or look that old to have experienced as many years of life as you seem to have just described to me. How old were you when you decided, oh, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm over this entertainment business and I'm going to go to school and get a doctorate in psychology and then start this whole new career? I was 41. I was 41. I was right at that age where, you know, like you're, you know, as an adult, hopefully you have an awareness at that point of like, okay, no, this is, this is the real shit. I'm an adult. And, you know, there are things that need to be done to be prepared for the future. And I, you know, I can't, I was raised by a, a really amazing woman who grew up, you know, in the deep South during the depression. And it was always about like, think about the future. I mean, you know, I, I think maybe there was a little bit too much fear. I wish there was a little bit more of, um, sort of uh, emphasis on fulfillment. Um, that wasn't necessarily emphasized, but I, by an, in a roundabout way, I came back around and now I'm in a career that was, I can have as much passion about as when I was, you know, doing undergrad learning to be a performer. So yeah, I'm, I'm up there. <laughs> I have, you know, I, I have, uh, we have some good genes in our family. So, you know, we tend to be <laughs> a little bit more youthful. There's also some mood disorders and some other things that aren't so great, but you know, our skin is really good. So that's, <laughs> that's probably why I can pull it off. <laughs> well, I feel terrible now because I've seen pictures of you online and I'm currently 41 and you definitely don't look older than me. <laughs> God damn I'll, I'll, uh, I'll send you my skin ru- routine. I'll send you all the points of it. Right. So th- this sounds like, a, so you, you, you work in, in psychology, you've worked in prisons, you work. It, it, I, I know you want to get into the organization, but in what capacity do you work with law enforcement? So I I say this without any exaggeration or uh, grandiosity or um, inauthenticity. I have the best job in the world. I, I can't even believe that I lucked into this particular position that I didn't know existed. I I'm part of what's called a co-responder model. So. In several, in most of the large urban areas of the U.S., um, starting a few years back, as there were more and more violent interactions with the mentally ill and police in the community, that ended up tragically, you know, ended up in loss of life. Mm-hmm. Especially, well, it all started in Memphis, and in Memphis was having a number of these interactions, and they realized, like, we, we've got to figure something out. So they brought in a sociologist and a social worker and a psychologist, and they did this big sort of, we need to regroup and figure this out. And they developed what was called the Memphis model of co-responders, which is instead of sending police out alone to these calls that end up being mental health calls, have a clinician go with you so that they can determine, so that they can use their de-escalation skills in the same way that law enforcement uses their de-escalation skills. And therefore, and then move forward into an evaluation of what that particular individual's needs are. In Los Angeles, we have psychiatric emergency teams. We have psychiatric mobile response teams. We have, there's tons of acronyms that are basically a cop and a mental health clinician. And they roll out when someone is suicidal or barricaded in their home or, you know, someone that's acting bizarrely or danger to themselves, danger to others, possibly gravely disabled. So those people might end up being hospitalized on a psychiatric hold out here. We call it a 5150 for a 72 hour hold for observation. And while I don't work, I've worked in that immediate and emergent uh, psychiatric position. The position I have right now is I do the follow up with a detective and we go out in the community after someone has been hospitalized and we have to determine, okay, is this person potentially a long-term threat to themselves, a long-term threat to their family, the community, et cetera? And what can we do to make sure that they are connected to services? And, you know, one of the things I can say about Southern California is the, the availability and understanding and emphasis on mental health care is by and large 
unlike any place else in the world. I mean, we have the most comprehensive mental health services in our cities and in our counties um, as compared to anywhere else in the country and probably even the world. Um, Not to say that there aren't some problems sometimes, but we really do a fantastic job of, you know, making sure that like this, this veteran who's suicidal, but doesn't like to go to the VA and has a fear of the VA, what can we do to get him or her set up with services? And how can we encourage them to get in services. And I, I'm a real pit bull. Like my partner is like this detective and he's, he's the good cop. I'm the one that's like pushing, you know, like educating families on, look, you know, your, your child is severely ill. And if they're not compliant with medications, then this is the sequelae. This is the, this is what's likely going to happen. And I'm really sorry to have this conversation with you, but you have to draw boundaries with your family members. And you know, I have to, so a lot of it is psychoeducation and intervention and one to one therapy for a short time basis, transitional case management, de escalation. We do hostage negotiation when it's called for. We do, we do investigations uh, to determine whether or not this individual that we are evaluating is on a path to extremism of any kind. And if so, what people in the community can we connect this individual with? To divert those energies. So it's an enormous program with a lot of different responsibilities. It's incredibly fun. uh, And it's the same every day, but also different every day, if that makes any sense. Well, absolutely. Anytime you're dealing with with people, then it's got it's always different. Right. And as for from your former position, you I know you understand what I'm talking about, because you were there on the scene doing a version of what we do. 100%. All right. So Dr. Scott, Today, we're going to break down the case, the murder of Lacey and Connor Peterson. Lacey's husband, Scott Peterson, was convicted and sentenced to death in this case. Now, so just to kind of give the quick beats of it, and you can fill in anything that I'm missing here, but to get through the basics of the case really quickly. So it's Christmas Eve, 2002. Lacey Peterson is about eight and a half months pregnant with her son who they'd already decided on the name Connor for. According to Scott, in his uh, statements to police, he was around the house that morning till about 9.30. He leaves to go fishing, and around 10.30 in the morning, some neighbors see the Peterson's dog come wandering down the street with, with just the leash hanging off of him. And Scott gets home later that afternoon, and he realizes she's not there. Does some strange things, and, we're, and then what we're the, really what we're going to dig into is his psychology. So we'll come back to that. Uh, you know, takes a shower and stuff. Her car's there, her keys are there, her purse is there, but she's not there. He ends up calling her mom, and then her stepdad calls nine one one. The search begins, and uh, there's a lot of strange things going on with Scott during the search for her. Ultimately, her body ends up being found mutilated seemingly so from being in the water in the ocean for that long, um, washes up in the San Francisco Bay, and ultimately Scott ends up being arrested and convicted. Now, the case is very, it's contentious. It's one of those cases where there's a guilty camp and an innocent camp. Seems to me the innocent camp is the smaller camp in this group. But the, the reason it's it's still being talked about, two reasons right now, one, just a couple of months ago, uh, the California Supreme Court overruled the death sentence for Scott Peterson based on uh, the judge removing jurors from the, from the jury pool based on the fact that they might be against the death penalty, which apparently they're not allowed to do. So that's been remanded back to a lower court. And as a matter of fact, it's it's it, the, the timing of this, Dr. Scott, was almost perfect because I don't know if you're aware of this, but we're recording this on November 5th. Tomorrow, Scott Peterson is due back in court on this very issue. Did you know that? Yeah, yeah. I had, uh, you know, I we had heard about it like sort of uh, bits and pieces here and there about what was going to happen. And now it just seems like it's really moving quickly, which is. It just seems very odd that suddenly it's popped up at this time. I, I was wondering, I couldn't find out why now it's become such an issue to rehear this, but maybe that's been in the works with his defense for a while. I, I think since about 2017, I mean, he's been, of course, anyone with a death sentence is, is constantly appealing. 
But I think the the wheels started in motion for this in like 2017, worked through some lower courts, got up to the California Supreme Court. They unanimously ruled that the judge messed up and they sent it back down. And so now it's important to understand they didn't overturn his conviction. They overturned his sentence. So he's just going back to have the sentence reevaluate. And I don't know if it'll be another jury or how that's going to work tomorrow when he goes into court. But then it also seems, and I don't know how this is going to shake out, but there's a potential through another course of appeal that his conviction may be overturned based on uh, a discovery that there was a juror that lied during, uh, they're saying, the defense is saying she lied in order to get on the jury to convict Scott Peterson. And, and there was a question, have you ever been a victim of a crime? She said no. As it turns out, she was a victim of a crime. Uh, of an attack when she she herself was four months pregnant, so that they may result in a whole new trial at some point. Uh, yeah, I you know, and all I would say to that is, if that is true and if that is accurate, then that's the way our system is supposed to work. You know, the system failed everyone involved at the beginning if they did not do an appropriate screening of the jurors, and you know, if that. Does do does is that going to change the mind of the majority of people and the preponderance of evidence in this case? I I highly doubt it. But I think one of the things that people are reacting to is that they're immediately assuming that if he gets a retrial, then you know he's going to get released on a lack of evidence, which just doesn't or or it's or it'll change his sentence or he'll suddenly be released, and that just seems very unlikely to me. Yeah, I, I I can't see a jury not convicting him again. Right. Um, and, and what we you know what we do with the, in truth and justice, you know, it's all about you know we work on wrongful conviction cases, but you know what we say all the time is we have to if we want the system to work right and work fairly, then that means for all cases. So that if this is one that yeah, I mean, I'll tell you, I personally think he's guilty, but if he didn't receive a fair trial, then his conviction should be overturned and he should get another new trial, and that's. And, and that's the, it's the, it's basically the same problem that we have with the cases where we have innocent people who were convicted is if the judges and prosecutors aren't doing their job properly, it results in mistakes. And sometimes the mistake is an innocent person goes to prison, and sometimes the mistake results in a guilty person getting out. Right. And that's, unfortunately, we don't have a perfect system. Uh, we have one of the better ones in the world. But. That is very much a chance, and it just shows, you know, with all due respect, I mean, and and sincerely, I say this is like you're even being able to describe that in that way shows your ability to tolerate dis- distress and use critical thinking skills because people get very triggered about these kind of things, and I get triggered. I mean, I understand. I mean, I I've worked in this milieu now for almost two decades, and I get that that people want to make a bunch of assumptions and then they have their own anecdotal experience. And sometimes the juxtaposition of those two uh, phenomenon result in just throwing critical thinking and rationality to the wind. And we just, we can't afford that. We cannot afford that for anybody, no matter how disgusting the person is. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. So in this case, so that that's all some of the reasons our list, my listeners want us to talk about it was to kind of get a better understanding of what's going on with him legally right now. That's basically what's going on now. And for you listeners, the Friday follow-up this week, hopefully by then we'll have some, some more information on that to talk a little bit more about, the case, uh, about his legal case. But the case itself, this, the reason it's still being talked about is because it's not a super clear case of guilt, meaning there's no real direct evidence. There's not, there's not forensics. Other than you know a, a, a couple hairs found in a in a pair in of the pliers, pliers on the boat, yeah. yeah. And um, but you know, there's no eyewitnesses, there's no direct evidence, there's no physical evidence. Uh, so everything the, the entire case was based on circumstantial evidence, which sounds weak, but in reality, in my opinion, the behavior of Scott Peterson, the behaviors of Scott Peterson, really, I mean, he either killed his wife and his unborn child. Or he is the most unlucky human being on the planet for the for the set of circumstances that led him there, and also a pretty rotten person, I think, in my opinion. But uh, do you want to do you want to walk through kind of what were the what were his behaviors that led to his arrest and then conviction? 
Well, let me let me frame it this way with a preamble that Dr. Shiloh and I often use, and it's one of the things that we've we've done episodes on, and it can be incredibly frustrating. Is you know the the Nancy Graces of the world want to look at the most surface expression or affect of people like uh, Peterson who are in this in this position, and they want to then just really run with a bunch of assumptions. And, you know, in someone like her position, I'm just, I'm using her. She's not the only one, but I'm using her as an example. She's a great example. Yeah, because she has a a huge platform. And while I completely respect her intelligence, I have a real problem with, you know, how she chooses to use her platform to further really, you know, further justice. And I don't, I don't think that's being done. And she's not the only one. Mm-hmm. So that being said, it's about we need to be really careful about judging one of the most I guess one of the most frustrating examples is when they talk about, you know, whether the, whoever it is sitting behind that defendant's chair, sitting in the defendant's chair, wow, she's not showing any emotion. She's just stone cold. He is just blank. He is this, he is that. And the problem with that is that you're dipping into brief moments of what is it ostensibly a very long and involved and emotionally exhausting process. And you're making quick snap judgments on these brief moments in time that may or may not and generally generally don't actually reflect actor, accurately on what is objectively happening in that moment or objectively representing that individual. And it's frustrating that this has gone on in our judicial system for years. And, you know, we're even I've, I've been in a courtroom where judges have just, you know, gone off on defendants for, you know, your lack of showing any remorse. You're sitting here day after day. But then on the other hand, if someone is just a fraction too much performative or has too much of an expressive affect, the same thing happens on them and people start crying crocodile tears and all sorts of all sorts of judgments. So I want to be very careful and, and or very clear with people that I'm want to be careful about that. But all that being said in this particular case, what, what I want to do or what I do when I'm looking at this particular case or this particular example is I think of it in terms of measurements of and I'm gonna use a bizarre term and I've kind of made it up, but I'm I'm thinking of like sort of a multidimensional hologram rather than a spectrum of behaviors. And so we're we're talking about how much, in what way, under what circumstances, and in what environment are we talking about? So if you just had a run-of-the-mill individual who was accused of murder and was acting in this way and the trial had gone on for six months, you know, I think we need to be really careful about the things we said. But in response to you know what where we're going now, looking at what his behaviors were leading up to all of this, that gives a clear picture to me. And I'm going to say just this is my professional opinion that he really presents with a lot of guilt. You know, there's a lot of evidence that show a chronic pattern of behaviors that indicate psychopathy. And there's also a historical background of his previous behaviors and his family upbringing that really seem significant to me. That's the way I would say it. So I don't know if you're familiar. There's also a, a, a psychiatrist, Dr. Keith Ablo, who has written a bunch of books. He's like a big media psychiatrist. He got in a lot of trouble recently because he apparently couldn't keep it in his pants. Um, and I used to have a lot of respect for him as a forensic psychiatrist, and he wrote a book inside the mind of Scott Peterson. And um, I was really, I was really disappointed in reading it because he, for someone who works in my field, he made enormous leaps about who uh, Peterson is as a person, and made enormous leaps and connections, and made assumptions diagnostically. That he really should not have done, because in our position, you know, I'm I am a psychologist, so I'm not necessarily working under 
uh, the ruling that psychiatrists are supposed to follow, which is to not diagnose. But we do encourage ourselves when we're looking at something forensically. So we're looking at all the data in front of us that's historic, that's chronic, that's current. We look at it and we want to be dispassionate and we want to be looking primarily at behaviors and not necessarily throwing a diagnosis at the person. So that's my long-winded way of saying that if we look at Scott, some of the things that really stick out for me, and you know, believe me, I pick out things or things are significant to me that other psychologists would not find uh, indicative of anything. And they might see something that I don't see. So that's why it's really great to collaborate. And it's one of the reasons uh, Dr. Shiloh is so great to work with, because we really see things. We kind of have different lenses on things, and it comes together really well. But one of the, the biggest things for me in looking at the, the behaviors leading up to this is if we go back to the courting of Lacey by Scott, the extent that he went to create this sort of rom-com fantasy meal. So she shows up and he's got like a dozen red roses. And then they go on a deep sea fishing excursion uh, where she's sick the whole time. You know, she has uh, seasickness. And there's just like this overt romanticism without really knowing the person at all and also not asking like, what are you into? It's just, it's, it to me is one of those behaviors that really falls in that personality disordered thing of, I, I need to make such a huge impression on this person. So this is, this is what I'm going to do. And then later, and the only reason that that is particularly significant to me is because he repeats the same thing with Amber when he takes her out. And there's again, another bunch of roses and and I'm so sorry I'm blanking on it because it's either Lacey's mom or Amber's mom. He buys another dozen roses only. They're in white to sort of honor the mom. And, you know, just this over-the-top rom-com version that to me indicates when somebody has a really split self. And I'm not saying that he is has a dual personality. I'm not saying that he's anything like that. I'm saying that he has what we would call a false persona or a mask persona. There's a mask that he wears that has worked very well for him throughout his life to get people to react to him in a certain way. And isn't that that's similar to what we see in you know some you know one of the most notorious serial killers, Ted Bundy had that same type of thing, right? Or, or am I am I off on that? No, you're absolutely right. It's what we would call superficial charm. So it's about going through the motions. I mean, the real empathy and the real connection, rather than doing like huge grand gestures, is to have time to spend with somebody intimately and like get to know what they like and what they're into. There's another thing that is certainly a, a big giveaway is if you go into the information that was revealed eventually about how he met Amber is that he was in a hotel cocktail bar and hit on a girl. By using, I mean, his, his pickup line was asking her what her favorite sexual position was. And she was, I guess she wasn't put off too much, but she wasn't interested. So she said, Hey, I think you might know somebody that I like, which is a whole other bizarre story. Like some idiot comes up to you with a crude come online and you go, Ooh, that kind of grosses me out. But hey, my friend might like it, you know, which is bizarre. But it also, once again, illustrates that split between who he actually is versus what he wants to present to the public on a regular basis as the family guy, as the, you know, everybody talks about him having this megawatt smile and how he could light up a room. Well, you know, even animals learn to respond to their environment with behaviors and expressions that get them the most attention. So in this way, I think that he really represents, you know, an individual that that has learned to mimic uh, charm, and he's learned to mimic a lot of things that are impressive to people. Right. I do want to jump in real quick, and just just for, it just occurred to me that for anybody that's listening to this that isn't familiar with the case, that Amber Amber Fry is the woman that Scott was having an affair with at the time of the at the time of Lacey's, Lacey and Connor's murder. Just, I just wanted to make sure I put that out there so people aren't trying, getting confused. 
Yes, thank you for that. Sorry about the for jumping into that too much. You know, there I'm jumping around here, but another huge example and I mean Scott's backstory is quite fascinating. The family backstory is it is so profound and there's so much to look at in doing sort of a psych profile which I'm not doing because I don't have all the data. But I'm just, I'm reflecting on what I do have available to me is very interesting because there is a lot of trauma in his family background. And his parents are odd, to say the least. Their response to a lot of this was very, very odd. And now, once again, I want to certainly give them the leeway of saying that this was an absolutely extraordinary situation that no one is would know how to necessarily navigate, right? If you, you know, your son is accused of these horrible things. But as a background, uh, a woman, he has a, um, he had a half sister who they were, you know, this woman, Ann Bird, only became reattached to her mom, who is Scott Peterson's mom, as an adult when she found out she had been adopted because Scott's mom had been through some really difficult times and had to, give her child up for adoption. So at the beginning, when she was able to, to reconnect with the family, one of the things that Ms. Bird says about meeting her biological mom is like, although it was like a really great experience to like, oh, to reconnect with her biological origins, there wasn't really a lot of interest shown in you know, who she was as a person. There were sort of like a lot of superficial questions that were being asked by mom. Now, I'm just saying that as an aside because I'm going to place it over. So, that's just something that jumped out at me when I was reading the material. But then later, when everything goes down and he's trying to get away from the media, which is always, you know, surrounding his home, he goes and he lives with his half-sister, this newly, recently newly found half-sister. And she remarked that in, during his stay with them, he was the most empty person that she had ever encountered. And to quote her from one of her interviews is, everything he does seems to be, seems to have been copied from someone else. And to me, that when we're looking at sort of leaning towards a diagnosis of psychopathy, that is a huge tell. It's like a poker tell. Um, just this, this emptiness about him. And the the copying, what, what where does that come from? Because you know I've heard that other people you know that would that have been kind of diagnosed at least on the internet as right. as, as psychopaths. You hear that where it's like they almost don't know how to have things like empathy or to be able to have relationships, and so they they literally just mimic other people's behaviors. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot. I mean, we could there's a whole other rabbit hole to go down that um, Dr. Shiloh is. She explains it so much more elegantly than I do, but there's certainly, um, we've found in multiple MRIs that there's a difference in the brain structure and that there's also the presence of what is called the warrior gene in um, a lot of psychopaths. But that's also to remember that, you know, out of the percentage of our world population of people that fall within the sociopathy and psychopathy parameters, not all of them are going to end up being criminals or not all of them are going to end up being horrific serial killer criminals, such as the, the big examples that we see. What we do know is that it is a combination of nature and nurture. So if you have a kid that has these tendencies, but they're in a really great structured environment, then they may not really feel compassion and empathy and sympathy the way you or I would. Because we have those regular brain structures, mm -hmm. but they can learn very quickly like, oh, this is the way you're supposed to go through life. And if I do this, then I am rewarded in this way. And they can have a, a type of experience that is certainly not the emotional spectrum that someone who's neuronormative would have, but they can have a kind of it and they can learn from it. So what's a good example? What is it? There's a great saying when we talk about people with sociopathy is they, they use a music metaphor. They know the words, but they can't hum the tune. No, that makes sense. Yeah. I think the thing that makes it difficult sometimes, because when you look at, especially the, there's just so much 
available to the public that is interested in this genre of true crime. And I think it's great that that people, you know, the more people learn about human behavior, I think the the better, even if it's in these sort of, you know, media slash entertainment outlets. But when we look at somebody like um that's a big personality, like oh my god, I'm blanking on his name. We were just talking about him. Um Ted Bundy? Ted Bundy. So sorry. How could I possibly forget Ted Bundy? Because he's <laughs> everywhere. But Ted Bundy, you know, had sort of what we would call the positive symptoms of psychopathy in that he had this underlying narcissism and a need to be recognized for achievement in these ways and and, and a real need to have this positive regard reflected back to him in ways that the rest of us just sort of like, oh, well, they don't really think much of me. That's okay. I go on with my day. So for someone like Ted Bundy, he really, really needed that reflection back and he needed it in an overt way. And my theory about Scott Peterson is that he was more of, he had more covert personality symptoms, like covert narcissism, covert psychopathy that ran below the surface. And and that's how he acted out is that he was able to hold it together for this veneer for family and community, but then he would act out by having these affairs where he could be, he could actually create like a completely different persona for them. You know, he goes in and meets Amber and she's a single mom with a kid and he's sweeping her off her feet and, you know, telling her he's in Paris, you know, he's just creating this big story. To me, that's, you know, Does that mean that he killed Lacey? That in itself absolutely does not. But his ease and lying throughout all of this is really both astounding and impressive. So, you know, he's just able to generate this alternate reality for someone that he feels is so compartmentalized that she's not going to find out what's going on. Well, that was that was a big part of, I think, why he was avoiding the media, because he had he was maintaining this relationship with Amber at first telling her that he had, he wasn't married. And then he, he, if I understand it right, he eventually, you know, quote comes clean and tells her, well, he was married, but he lost his wife and this was going to be the first Christmas without his wife. And he tells her this two weeks or so before his wife goes missing. Which is clearly emotional manipulation, you know, creating this persona of me, not only am I a really great guy, but look at the pain that I've been through and I'm still going to soldier through and I'm going to offer you the chance at happiness in your life. You know, it's, it's it really is sort of just trying to create this hallmark rom-com type of uh, scenario. And he just slides in and out of that reality so easily. I mean, the, I guess I'd use the word chilling to me. One of the most chilling things is in the middle of the investigations and everything going on, he is simultaneously having these conversations with Amber and lying to her about who, where he is and what's going on. At one point, he was even telling her that he was in Paris for New Year's. Right. And that was while, wasn't that while he was at a candlelight vigil? Yes. For Lacey. He and I, I can't even understand. Maybe you can help explain it, or if it maybe it's not explainable. But when I when I when I saw that, it's like, what? Why right then? Why in the middle of this vigil is does he step out and call his mistress and make up the story about how he's in Paris? I think two things are going on. One is that despite the likelihood of him having a different brain structure and a different chemical or a different, you know, genetic makeup than the general public. There is a level of self-soothing and overstimulation that happens in anybody, regardless of levels of psychopathy in them. And at that moment, he got, he had, he was overwhelmed. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do? You're going to get your fix in whatever way you can. And the way you can get it in that moment is to go back into the, the fantasy. I mean, to draw a parallel, I'm not sure if we were if this was off before we started recording or not, but you and I were talking about my my World of Warcraft recovery. And one of the things that I realized that I was doing when I was gaming, and I really loved that game, 
But it was during an incredibly stressful period of my life while I was working full time and going to graduate school full time. You know, the last thing I needed to be doing was playing for four hours until two in the morning, even though I thought it was going to relax me and make me feel better Mm -hmm. because I could completely dissociate and go into this game. And, you know, it just, after a while, the law of diminishing returns, it just didn't work for me anymore because I'm relatively neuronormal as opposed to someone like Scott that in this moment of after allegedly, well, I mean, he's been adjudicated for it. So after committing this crime, this is his fix is everybody's looking at me. I'm on the spot. I'm not sure how much support I'm getting from my family and community. They always, you know, they're always going to look at the husband or the boyfriend. So I'm going to move over to my fantasy world and get some external validation. That makes sense. That that actually makes a lot of sense because that was that was so baffling to me. It's like, why wouldn't you just wait till it's over? Like, right? What a horrible time to make that call. And of course, he didn't realize that the police were on the other end recording it. Right, right. But I think Bob, you're you're hitting on something also that is so important. And I say this, like, I, I give this example when I because I have a, a private practice as well as my regular work, and you know, I'll work with individuals coming out of relationships, and you know, I I always have such a, 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 a very tender place for people who are coming out of relationships with other individuals who have personality disorders, whether it be narcissistic personality disorder or uh, borderline personality disorder, or they're coming out of abusive relationships. And I'll tell you the main thing they want to know, whether they're male, female, anything, why did this happen? Why did he treat me this way? Why did she do this to me? I just want to know why. And I have to tell them every time, you're not going to know why. And if I could tell you why, and I can tell you why because he's got a person or she's got a personality disorder, the answer is not going to be good enough because you're looking at it through this lens of if I can figure out why this individual acts in this way, then I can adjust my actions and my emotions accordingly to not feel so bad about it. When the actual metaphor should be, Look, you don't live in crazy town. You live over here in relatively normal town. And the minute you drive out of your neighborhood over there to crazy town, you're going to be lost. Mm-hmm. You know, this is about tolerating distress and, I mean, from a, you know, mourning what you can't have. But to circle back around to your point of like, people just want to understand why this happens. And it's just because we're, we want to understand what basically are almost primal animal animal urges from the actions of psychopaths well that that that's fascinating to me that and it, it makes a lot of sense the reason why uh you know on, on a much more innocuous level you know i, I struggle sometimes I, I have four kids and and two of them have have adhd my, my youngest right now is is in school and I have to, and we go to a, to a counselor and or therapist and help him work, work through some things. But I'm constantly talking to the counselor after our sessions, like I telling him things just like this. I don't understand why he's doing that. Yeah. You know, we, it, you know, things like, you know, you know, why is he doing something that he knows is going to get him in trouble? And he's constantly explaining back to me that, you know, you, you, you're not, you can't understand it. Your brain doesn't work the same way his brain works. Like this makes, there's a reason for this. It makes sense to him. You know, and that's very, you know, anecdotal, a little innocuous thing. But, you know, when I expand that out to where somebody's literally their brain is wired different, that's that's just fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I, I use I, I uh, every couple of weeks, I, I'm part of a, a training program for law enforcement in California. And I do these lectures kind of introducing the, the basic concepts of uh, of mental health diagnosis. And one of the things that I try and ex- I, I give it as an example is, and I, you know, I'm happy to share this is that, you know, I, I'm the youngest of five children. Um, and I grew up in a time in the South in the sixties where there was not a vocabulary for many mental health issues. And I came from a culture and there's a lot of great things about Southern culture. I mean, I just, I just adore it and I'm glad I'm from the South, but there's this culture of you don't talk about certain things. And, you know, there was a, there was a time in, in my life where the word cancer was whispered because it was implied that people got cancer because they did something wrong or they didn't take care of themselves. And then the same thing started happening with mental illness. And of course, one, another thing that we also do 
in, in our culture is that because the mother is the primary nurturer, we tend to really fall towards blaming mothers for everything, which is incredibly unfair. And my experience was having a rapid cycling bipolar father who was the most charming, intelligent. Uh, I mean, he was just an amazingly gifted man until he wasn't. And when he was in the irritable or the depressive phase of his mental illness, it was really bad for our family. But we didn't have a context to understand it. And I remember years later in therapy, you know, trying to work through some of the the anger as, an, as a young man trying to like find my own identity as a man as juxtaposed to what I didn't get from my dad and just all this anger. My therapist said something so incredibly profound. He said, you know, um, Scott, if your dad acted that way because he had a huge tumor inside his skull and it was pressing on these certain nerves and that's the reason he did this, would it make a difference to you? And I immediately said, yeah, absolutely. It's not his fault. And of course, my therapist's response was, that's what I'm, that's what we're talking about is that it is. It's just, it's just, except that it's not a tumor. It's a collection of chemicals and it's a brain structure. And that's why he acts this way. Yes, there is some, he does have some uh, agency in his decisions and volition in his decisions, but he has been dealing with this illness his entire life. His whole life has molded around managing this. And, you know, you guys have to experience the fallout. So sorry to, to derail a little bit there, but I think it's important for all of us that love this genre to just hold everything with an open mind and remember that we, when we're doing profiles and we're, when we're, you know, sort of supposing about what people's motives were, you always really need to hold this open space for what you don't know. And when you don't leave that open space, you end up being Nancy Grace or Keith Ablow. Right. Yeah. That, that, that's a great point. Coming, coming back to the, the Peterson case before we, before we run out of time, some, some of the basic things that he did that, that I'm really interested in. So he was, he ha- was having this affair. I already mentioned that he, he tells Amber, which is another victim of this, by the way, I think. I mean, that absolutely had no idea that any of this was happening. He tells her two weeks before the murder, the murders that, he he had lost his wife. Then she goes missing. He says he's you know he took his boat out that day, which you know th- this is something I have some expertise in. He has a little fourteen foot boat. I have a little fourteen foot boat just like his sitting out in my barn, and I won't even take it here on Lake Michigan. But he's testing it out out on in the San Francisco Bay in in the ocean, which you know I, I find suspect to begin with. I couldn't. Ag- I'm glad you, I completely agree, and. I wish there was more emphasis put on that. To me, it seems like that's almost tossed off. I mean, the fact that he lied saying he was playing golf and then he told somebody else he was out in his boat and the idea of like, wait, you bought a boat and you're going to drive a 90 minute round trip journey to this place on Christmas Eve. And I know there's a lot of controversy about that of like, no, this is what some people do. And I absolutely disagree. I think that like, especially if you're invested in the veneer of the nuclear American family, that's not what the male unit does. That's, that's you know, it just doesn't fit. And what's interesting is that there are a lot of, there well, not a lot. I will say there are some, some, some significant females uh, out in the community who are are quite enamored with Scott and they write these defensive articles that actually are quite well written, but they, they try and pull that apart. And I'm, I don't buy it at all. I think that's incredibly another tell that he was gone, you know, that he was saying that that was a normal thing, that he was going to be gone at that time. And also, by the way, related to that, returning to the scene of the crime, huge tell, you know, the number of times that he went back Mm-hmm. to watch them is just you you that is such an incredible tell of someone who has committed a crime right it, it, you know so he so he's he's going out there doing something insane like, even if he was an asshole that's going to go out golfing or fishing on, on christmas eve while his wife's getting ready for the dinner the, like i said even just the even the logistics of that boat's not made for the ocean so right. why the hell would you go that far right to go in the ocean but then, so then she disappears. He does, some, I mentioned earlier, does some strange things. He gets home and says that he gets home. Now his, his wife's gone. 
His dog's in the backyard with a leash on it. Her keys are there. Her purse is there. Her her car is there, and he takes a shower. You know, like like it's like like no alarm bells were were, were raised at that point. And I know, like, if I come home and my wife's car's here and my wife's not here, I'm immediately going to be raising some alarms. Like, where the hell is she? Right. And this is where it gets a little bit wonky going back to that point of like you, we have to be really careful about what we consider to be what should be objectively normal. And it might not be normal for them. You know, I mean, but I, I, I agree with you. We just have to be careful with it. And I think that an important, an important overlay here, which actually is a quite a parallel to um, Chris Watts there and, and Scott Peterson, there's an, a, a very interesting parallel between their home lives that you look, they lived in these houses that were immaculate, which really takes a lot of work. You know, there's just like this real emphasis in both of these families on the external veneer and how you're perceived. And both of these women, these young women and moms, were really known to be energetic and loved by the community and involved in a bunch of things with these good-looking but slightly odd guys. You know, I, I just find that really interesting because like you're saying, I want to be careful, or like I was saying, I want to be careful, but at the same time, you're absolutely right. His behaviors of jumping in the shower when you can't find who they are, nobody's answering your call, and all the belongings are there. Alarm bells should have been going off like sirens at that point. Yeah, you, yeah, I would think so. But so, so then he eventually, as I said, it was the it was the stepdad that ends up calling the police, and then and then he's he doesn't do himself any favors with the media, which we later find out is because of his relationship with Amber Fry. But you know, they're giving press conferences, they're pleading for you know if somebody has Lacey to bring her back, and he's apt he's gone. He won't be in front of the cameras at all. And now, now my assumption from that is he had this whole fantasy world going on with Amber Fry, and he didn't want her to see him on the news and find out that he was married and his wife was missing. Right. Therefore, like the hats and the sunglasses and always being on the phone with his chin down whenever he was in front of cameras. Yeah. Yeah. And so then they have a ton of recorded phone calls. Throughout the the time when when Lacey's missing, still where he's he's carrying on with with Amber, and you know you talked about the grandiose, the roses, the rom com date, and even some of the one of the documentaries I watched, they played some of the tapes, and listening to him talk to her was it, it was exactly that he was he was like you're, I always tell you you're so special, but there's not a word there needs to be a better word because you're more than special and just over the top. Same type of thing in this all being done while Lacey's still missing. And then I thought I thought it was I'm curious your take on I thought it was kind of a big tell that before Lacey and Connor's bodies were found, he had put their house up for sale. I think he'd sold a vehicle and he put their house up for sale. Like when I read that, I thought if his wife's just missing, he doesn't know what happened to her and she might be coming back. And I guess I'm probably doing the same thing, putting my own, you know, what would I do, which we got to be careful not to do. But Right. And there, there are factors. I mean, like if you, if you dive into it, he, he talks about how the police had possession of one car. Lacey's didn't run that well. I mean, like, you know, there was actually sort of a, an objective rationale for why he did it. But this is a great example of operating from a different emotional paradigm because you if you were in that position would go that would not be appropriate for me to do right now it would not be appropriate right. me for me at this stage in the game to sell this car to sell this house to just start a start compartmentalizing and making for another life that's an aberrant behavior so you know even if so even it's like wow my money is really short and i need this and this and this that still would not be the time to do it. And the lack of understanding of that, while it doesn't necessarily indicate guilt, it does show that this guy is operating mentally and emotionally on a different level. Yeah, I mean, the fact, I, I just, you know, I, I can't imagine, and again, it's, it's based on what's going on in my brain, but even having, if my wife was missing, even being able to think about something like selling my house. Right. While that's going on. 
and you know, and the you know where my brain went was that he knows she's dead. No, he's the only one that knows that she's dead and she's not coming back. So right. he's ready to move on. You know, several years ago, uh, a relative of mine went missing for a while, and I remember my sister calling me on the phone very early one morning. And she was in tears, not knowing what had happened and was trying to figure things out on her end on the other side of the country. I And I was a wreck all day. Like, I was just an absolute wreck. And I was a wreck for three days until it was somewhat resolved. And even then, we were unsure. So, once again, I mean, I want to be careful about sort of making broad comparisons. But, you know, it is it is quite a tell that he reacted in that particular way. And then, I mean, I think the, you know, out of all this, the biggest getaway or the biggest tell is his attempt to escape. Right. You know, like the hair color, like, you know, this, there was planning that went into this. And that was, to me, was just a huge tell of, of his guilt that he wasn't, you know, most, I mean, most profilers will tell you this and really good interviewers will tell you that like, you know, when somebody's innocent, they won't stop talking. They just keep talking and keep talking because they know they're innocent. You know, I mean, that's a generalization, but here's someone that like suddenly just up and, and takes off. Yeah, he colors his hair. He had what, like $15,000 cash, um, several changes of clothing. Um, you know, like all, there were some things that were indicating that he had, he had his brother's ID and a couple of other things in the car that were telling too, not necessarily like indicating criminality, but once again, sort of like work clothes and full on dress clothes that he was planning on sort of finding a new identity across the border. Right. Okay. So now to kind of wrap this up, and I know that there's, we could go on with this case for hours and hours and hours. Absolutely. But to kind of wrap this up. So we, we've talked about some, some of his behaviors and that some of the behaviors could be explained by psychopathy, sociopathy. There's there's reasons his brain's wired different is is the reason he's doing some of these things, but knowing that knowing the behaviors that he actually that he actually went through pre offense and post offense, and and knowing or your assessment of what his his mental state is, do you think that he killed his wife? I do. You know, we have a, a forensic psychologist that really sort of wrote the book on so much of this data, and he is a professor here in Southern California, Doctor Reed Malloy. And the guy is just, he's like sort of St. Malloy to all of us. And his reflections on this particular situation, you know, when we talk about motivation, I think he kind of nails it on the head is that this is an, an, an individual who just didn't, you know, he just, he never wanted to be a father, never wanted to be a family man, but he wanted that veneer of it. And then when he had to f- come up crush against the reality of I'm going to be a, f- a father. He just decided, no, I'm going to change all that. And I can figure out a plan and a way to do it. And, you know, Reed Malloy, there's a great quote he has is the absence of true foundational structural empathy gives the psychopath the ability at times to kill without remorse and to kill with reasons filled with banality. Others emotions of grief and rage and fury are like water off a duck's back. So I think that that's the place that he got to is that I just don't want to be in this reality anymore. And the easiest way out is to remove the person that I see as the problem of it. Well, this, this conversation has been fascinating, Dr. Scott. And I definitely, I I want to have you back on again. Sometimes I I think we've got someone else. I want to have help weigh in. We always, we always have uh, Jim Clemente come on anytime we're looking for uh, a psychological analysis of some criminal behaviors, but he's got a busy schedule. So uh, hopefully Next time we have something like that, you might be available to come help chime in with us. Oh, we'd love to. I mean, that'd be great. And Dr. Shiloh and I would love to be on anytime you want our, you know, God knows we can both talk nonstop. So anytime. (laughs) Yeah. And the podcast is great. It's called LA Not So Confidential. If you want to, before I let you go, if you highlight maybe a couple episodes or a couple cases that you guys have covered that my audience might be interested in. Yeah, we we covered the range of forensic psychology and the crimes associated with them, and then also how it's portrayed in the media. And uh, our Scott Peterson uh, episode is one of the highest rate. I think we had like our just tens of thousands of downloads on it. Um, and we refer, we have two, one is Never Marry Peterson, because we talk about Drew Peterson and Scott Peterson. And then we also have one called Dual Lives or Double Lives. So those are really great. And we're getting 
tons of feedback on our latest episode, which is about sexomnia, which is um, a sleep, uh, a parasomnia where a person goes into a fugue state while sleeping and can act in very aberrant ways and how that has been used as a criminal defense in cases. So we touch on a little bit of everything. Um, we also have a live broadcast the Saturday after we drop. We out, we're on uh, Get Vocal, where we have our fans and listeners uh, jump in to ask questions, and we, you know, sort of uh, riff on topics. So please join us. We'd love to have any other listeners that are interested in our show. That'd be awesome. And, and I actually just myself listened today to your episode on the uh, sexopathy. Am I saying that right? Sexomnia. Sexomnia. I listened to that one today and also fascinating. Uh, they're all great. I hope you guys give them a listen. And Dr. Scott, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Bob. I really, really appreciate the opportunity. Crime Binge is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Audioboom. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing. Music and artwork by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Our website, TrueCrimeBinge.com, was created by Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com. If you're a listener and would like to recommend a future guest or a podcaster that would like to request an interview, you can do so right on our website. And again, that web address is TrueCrimeBinge.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do me a huge favor and take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen. And make sure you give us a follow on social media. We can be found everywhere at True Crime Binge. Thank you so much for listening and make sure you tune in next Wednesday morning for another podcaster, another case, and another True Crime Binge.